Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Woman in Compliance podcast. I'm Mary Shirley, and today I'm pleased to be making another bonus episode, this time with Nick and Gio Gallo. Gentlemen, please take a minute to introduce yourselves. I'll ask Nick to introduce Gio and vice versa. Well, thank you for having us, Mary. So glad to be here on one of our famous, or on one of our most favorite uh, podcasts. Um, Yeah, so uh, um, my brother is Gio. Gio is my partner, brother, best friend. Um, He's the one that I've linked arms with to kind of fulfill this lifelong dream of trying to make a dent in the world. And we found our way into the, um, you know, serendipitously found our way into the ethics and compliance space. And it just really resonated with us at a deep level. So um, yeah, Gio, thanks for being my brother. And thanks for joining us today on the uh, Great Women in Compliance podcast. Yeah, I mean, I had a choice in one of those, and both of them I'm very glad to be a part of. <laughs> hey, hey now. Yeah, I'm just saying I didn't choose it. I'm glad that it happened, though. Um, I, can't, I can't take credit for it. That's on our parents, I guess. Um, and uh, Nick is uh, my partner and co-CEO um, inside our company. He exists as our chief servant, um, living out our value of servanthood within Compliance Line and then extending to our clients and customers. And uh, you can see him all around the compliance profession, expressing his passion for not only compliance and ethics, but culture, treating people well, and ultimately using the excellence and the strategic insight that compliance leaders have to make an influence on the mission of companies so that we can all make the world a better workplace. Nick, thanks for being here. And I really appreciate you being my brother. (laughs) Thank you. Um, And that's a little picture, Mary, of, I mean, did you hear that intro? That was phenomenal. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> that was a that was well beyond what I did. So that's a that's a pattern that all of the listeners will hear throughout this episode, I imagine. Well, I love the bit about treating people well. Um, and and frankly, that is one of the reasons why I wanted you both to be on the show. I know that we personally have very um overlapping philosophies when it comes to that kind of thing. But also while you're here, I will be um, asking you a little bit about some strategy as well. So awesome. Great. Yeah. And um, so if I can jump in, Mary, I know yeah, you course. need no introduction, but I just want to say this because <laughs> I imagine there are a bunch of people in the audience and I want to let you know that you're not alone. I love this podcast. I listen to it oh. sometimes repeatedly. Uh, and I love the work that both you and Lisa do. And I just I think it's a, a wonderful expression of the values within compliance. And I just uh, in in case you're in the audience and you feel this way, know that you're not alone. This awesome podcast, the wonderful work that Mary does, we all love it basically. Oh, thank you so much for your kindness. Um, really appreciate that, Geo. And um, Nick, it did not go unnoticed, your little Freudian slip that this is a very famous podcast. I joke. It's highly famous. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Matt Kelly, we think um, compliance being compliance famous is life. So um, I feel very validated with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so you guys are really big on servant leadership. And I've even seen you put your titles as chief servant rather than always using the CEO or co-CEO uh, title. Will you explain what servant leadership means to you and give some examples of how you as managers display those characteristics? Yeah. So when we took over Compliance Line, um, you know, we've always thought that 
culture is the only sustainable competitive advantage in business. So what we decided to do first and foremost is flip our org chart upside down, not only because that visual symbol of having an upside down pyramid helps convey uh, the new culture that we wanted to be a part of and help build in the organization. It also kind of helps convey that instead of us being the pharaohs on the top of a pyramid, we are going to be the roots of the tree that can pull nutrients from the soil, so to speak, mm -hmm. to push those out to the branches and so forth so that we can make the lives of the people that we serve uh, easier so that they can mm -hmm. do a better job of serving the people that we're all here to serve, which is the client. So we can't be a service company if we're not full of servants. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, we can't be, again, the kings of the organization and just walk around with a riding crop screaming at people to, you know, serve, serve, right. If we're mm -hmm. not sort of showing that example ourselves. Great. And I think, uh, um, you know, another angle just, to kind of give, give a treatment to that. I, you know, I think part of it comes from how we were raised and how we saw our parents exist in, you know, toxic work cult cultures. They were both working the whole time we were growing up. Part of it is just, you know, our worldview and that we think that, you know, leaders should come to serve, not to be served. And you can have a much bigger positive impact in life when you're trying to take care of your people instead of just trying to take care of yourself and see if you can dip your, you know, your, your hands into their pockets and their wallets and right. things like that. So some of it is just at our core, we think this is right. But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, Mary, like we are in business, right? Like the, you know, even if you're in a non-for-profit company, this is one of my soapboxes, even if you're in a not-for-profit company, you should be focused on performance and excellence mm -hmm. and making sure mm -hmm. the right things get done, right? This is not a profit motive. This is an excellent excellence motive. Mm -hmm. And we think that if you want to build excellence into your individual team, you and I have talked about this, Mary, your team, mm -hmm. your department, the entire company, whatever it is, we think that servant leadership is the way to unlock the genius of really any people who are on your team. And I think it's especially prudent in a knowledge work economy where people right. can give discretionary effort, mm -hmm. where people can go above and beyond or, you know, kind of hide without metrics for some time or whatever it is. We think that this mentality of servant leadership, it's not just the right kind of ethical way to mm -hmm. treat people. We think that it allows your people to be empowered and engaged. It allows your people to be trusted and to, you know, really multiply the effort that each of us put in so that one plus one isn't just equal to two or three, but one plus one can be 11. I think that that's mm -hmm. uh, why, you know, that's what we believe about servant leadership. And I think we're seeing that not just in compliance line and our company and our teams that we run, but we see it all around in this current economy and in you know the way that industry is going. People who view it this way, they attract better talent, they retain mm -hmm. better talent, they innovate better. There are a lot of studies around it. We think it's you know moral and ethical and the right thing to do, but it also leads to the right outcome. I agree with all of those things. I think everything that you've mentioned is is very important and and walking the talk is is not the least of all. I think as well, you're probably finding already that it is a competitive advantage in this economy where the great resignation is taking place. I think it engenders loyalty. Um, I, the McKinsey study showed that uh, people are leaving right now um, because they don't feel a sense of belonging. Um, and they don't feel appreciated. And so mm -hmm. in the type of culture that you two have fostered, I think you're really saving yourselves from that, you know, that kind of turnover. But also you've bridged the gap in terms of understanding what it is that people want in a workplace. And 
the McKinsey study also showed that employers think the reason people are leaving is because of money. So we can see that there is a massive gap that a lot of people just don't get. And so while they're off busy either ignoring it because they think that employers, uh, the employees are greedy or they're, they're figuring that out when it's actually other things that you can work on that really don't cost a thing. And to me, that's the crazy part of this is that in yeah. order to be just really great employers or bosses or managers, we don't need to spend a ton of money. We just have to not be jerks and and really think about um, not just treating people like I want to be treated, but treating people how they want to be treated. Yes. Yeah, treating them like that. a human being. And mm-hmm. that's, everybody wants to be treated like a human being. Mm-hmm. And how many places have you worked at where, you know, you walk in and you have to like take the heart out of your chest or take the brain out of your head and you have to keep your head down because you don't want to mm-hmm. get fired or whatever, um, that dollar myopia has led that sort of industrial revolution that sort of spawned on this dollar myopia, uh, over everything has, you know, led to, I think some of that, that fodder for this, this, you know, this, uh, ignition of the great resignation, which we're kind of seeing and living through right now. Mm. But that study is so interesting because of that divide, even on Mm. the, the words on the page. Everybody, Mm -hmm. you know, management thinks it's because of dollars and people are leaving because they're like, like labor mobility has never been higher. There are people on our team that we've worked with that we've never even met face to face Mm because we can communicate over Zoom and that sort of veil has been pierced at this point. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's a, it's just a massive opportunity to bring a little authenticity and like connect on a little bit of humanity with a purpose Mm -hmm. that can resonate with people's own individual gifts to unleash those things. And that's, that's what we get super excited about which we would be doing if we were running a metal stamping business. But it's just so happens that we get to be a, be a part of and partake in this broader um, ethics and, com- and compliance community, which when I think fully actualized is all about unlocking that magic in the workforce by providing mm-hmm. those sort of clear lines around you know, the field of business, whatever that business might be, so that people can put those gifts to work and understand what values and what, you know, what behaviors are in line with the culture that we're at some level um, responsible for it. I get we're all responsible for it, but you know, there's a lot that we can do to help breathe some life into that. And, uh, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of fun to be part of this, this thing, you know, Absolutely. It's, it, it's so interesting that people are caught off guard by this. And I don't mean to suggest that we have all the answers, but mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of like, there are these different layers. If you think that it's just about money and benefits, you're like working, you're thinking of like a pre-industrial economy mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, hey, you know what, you better, you better thank me for having a job. I, mm-hmm. I sign your paycheck. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I tend to think that people didn't like being treated that way anyways, but, you know, maybe it was a little bit more like that. Obviously, I'm generalizing. But then for so long, you know, it's like, hey, it's not just paying benefits, but it's a good manager, right? You know, like for so long, people have said people don't leave a company, they leave a manager, right? Like mm-hmm. so many, the reason so many people leave is because their manager isn't good. Well, that's not even the whole story now because this great resignation is by, you know, based on that belonging and am I contributing to something and am I valued and stuff? And that's mm-hmm. not just like, am I not being micromanaged to kind of, you know, maybe uh, put, put a uh, tight point on it. But, you know, it's this thing of like, am I part of a group? And, you know, is the in crowd something that I want to be a part of? And is this, is this a place where I want to contribute not just my time, but my heart and my effort mm-hmm. and my discretionary effort and things like that. And the thing that's most exciting about that, I think in our context, Mary, is that this conflict of people don't feel like their workplace is a place where they belong or that they can respect and hold their head high. 
that's what we as compliance and ethics professionals have been building toward for so many years, right? There's, there's so many things that we as a company work toward, whether it's just making sure there isn't fraud or job security because we don't, mm. you know, a, uh, you know, a problem doesn't need to, you know, cause a division to shut down into, you know, training on discrimination, harassment, and all those things. We've been getting ready, the, ready for this for a long time and all of the caring that compliance and ethics professionals have had of, we want to do this right. You know, just staying out of jail is, is not our only standard. That's mm-hmm. like, you know, hardly a starting point. Uh, mm-hmm. We've been ready for it. And now people are finally saying, Hey, maybe our company should live that way. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, that's encouraging to me, um, not just, you know, because we run compliance line and we sell software and case management to compliance professionals and, you know, demand for compliance is growing, but just, I know there are so many people in our profession who were friends with Mary, who Nick and I talk with, who, you know, are really ready to step up. And I think mm-hmm. that this is driving, driving it to a place where people are looking around saying, Hey, who can help us with this? And we can raise our hand and say, Hey, I'm ready. Mm. And I would love to to take a minute just to talk a little bit more about what you guys do substantively. Um, so, dear listener, um, this might be an advertisement, but I think it's important to know the context of where um, Nick and Gio are coming from. So, unpaid. They- <laughs> this is an unpaid advertisement. <laughs> um, uh, so they they own uh, a company which has a number of compliance services, and I think you're best known for having a compliance action line or a, a reporting hotline service. Um, so, you know, I, I know that there's not a lot of choice out there or there's perceived to not be a lot of choice out there, um, but if you happen to be in a situation where your hotline provider isn't working for you, Nick and Geo are a great place to shop around. Um, they do buy out contracts and things um, to make that transition easy for you. So I, I would encourage you to take a look if, if you're feeling forlorn and frustrated. But additionally, you guys do work in other areas as well. I know that sanction checks is something else. Um, do you want to just give me a little laundry list of the other things? Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, compliance line has been around for over 25 years and you're right, Mary, uh, at our founding in the, I like to say the late 1900s, um, the, (laughs) (laughs) uh, we started as a hotline provider. And since then, you know, we've, we've really innovated along the curve that our clients have asked us to. So, um, at this point we're providing compliance software and some services to, to the leaders, the caring leaders of over 7 million employees around the world across all our different client, client bases. And that's part, how of how, part of how we measure our mission and our impact. But you know, across time, people have said, hey, you're doing a great job at this. What about this? Hey, this new regulation is coming out. Can you help us with this? Mm-hmm. And that's led from you know, hotline to diversified intake around you know, web form and uh, artificial intelligence app and uh, you know, texting and all the different ways we do intake, following that through into case management and investigations in the workplace and things like that. Um, we do exit interviews, which we think that compliance should have a hand in because there's a lot of risk there. Um, mm-hmm. And it should not, you know, just like your hotline should not be internal, your exit interview should not just be done by, you know, the firing manager. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and we do conflict of interest forms and a bunch of different ways that our software and technology around case management and incident intake um, can help a compliance team get a clear view of what they're doing. Um, and then we also do e-learning. So, you know, digital training on your code of conduct and discrimination, harassment, cybersecurity, HIPAA, all that stuff. Um, and we, you know, we've been doing sanction screening, OIG, exclusion screening, all the different things that people call it for over a decade. Um, and we do license monitoring related to that as well and background screening. Um, and we do that with a full service model that doesn't just 
give you a login and tell you, hey, figure out what your uh, results are. But, um, you know, our team can help you kind of get clarity from agencies and work toward a clean list or a, you know, small set of, hey, you need to check on these people. And we do a full wraparound service to make sure that this very complex sanction screening service uh, can be done and you're confident that, you're done it, that you've done it well. Awesome. Thank you for that. That was a, a, a well-rounded um, summary there. And um, I, I think one of the interesting things, and, and we talked about this, and I initially thought, oh, this isn't very trailblazing when you mentioned exit interviews. And I was like, yeah, yeah, guys, those those are old. We, we know how to, you know, we know all about incorporating those. And you're like, no, Mary, wait. Um, how, you know, our, our main point is that compliance is often not a part of the discussion. I thought, oh, right. You guys are so right because how they typically run um, is either, as you point out, with the hiring manager who may be extremely non-objective um, or <laughs> HR who I also would consider a lot of the time to not be objective because they essentially totally. are looking after the company, right? They're not looking after totally. me as an individual employee. And a lot of the time as a compliance officer, I'm relying on people proactively coming to me and saying, hey, exactly. here was this exit interview content that I think you might want to know about. And if they're not incentivized <laughs> to share that with me, I'm not going to see it. So um, I love that you were patient with me and explaining your um, <laughs> the way that you guys do things, which is really making sure that compliance um, truly has a hand in the process. And as someone who is more objective, um, gets the information that is needed to build out the compliance program. Yeah, and it's all the stuff that we're looking for in our regular intake, right? You want mm -hmm. someone to raise their hand and talk about a risk. Well, sometimes mm -hmm. that risk drove somebody out of an organization. Mm -hmm. And what's the number one thing? Obviously, there's a few, but what's the number one thing that prevents somebody from speaking up? It's that fear of retaliation, which mm -hmm. is gone when they've mm -hmm. left. So um, it removes a massive impediment and there's, you know, there's, there, there's oil in those hills from an ethics and compliance perspective that we can actually, if we can get it, we can mm -hmm. actually do something that can meaningfully change our workplaces. And mm -hmm. that's where the magic is. And that's where mm -hmm. ethics and compliance can go from this sort of cost center, kitty table function to mm -hmm. a real strategic lever, which I think we're going to see over the next 10 years. Yeah. And in, in that context, you know, this, the whole kind of reporting whistleblower speak up culture is moving to a listen up culture. And if you want to build a listen up culture at your company, you want to be listening, not just to the existing employees who are, you know, potentially afraid that they might lose their right to a paycheck by saying that someone did something wrong, but be listening to those people who are leaving who, you know, if you give them enough distance and chance to catch their breath, they may be the most transparent people around wrongdoing, things that are wrong with the company. It might just be mm -hmm. cultural. It exactly. might be, you know, specific regulatory risks or whatever it is. Um, so we see it as, you know, the kind of core that we care about is caring for people and building strong cultures at companies. Um, you know, exit interviews are tied to that. And it also has a specific interest for the uh, compliance, risk management, and, uh, you know, ethics departments. I love the the rebranding of of listen up, and I think that can go broader than you know what we traditionally see on the speak up sense. And the first thing I thought of um, was you know when we seek or we solicit um, almost data analytics for our program by way of getting um, uh, qualitative data for things like culture of integrity surveys. One of the things that's really important to me is making sure I report back afterwards. So not just grabbing the data right. and running away with it, but saying hey. Just closing the loop on this, you told me that you wanted shorter, snappier trainings with real-life examples. You know, look out for that coming in our 2022 training plan kind of thing. So listen up, um, I, I think, can be really useful in terms of we are hearing what you're saying, but most importantly of all, we're acting on it where we can. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It turns it into a conversation. 
know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. if it's not a conversation, it's just like dropping a comment box that empties out over a mm-hmm. fire in a barrel. That's mm-hmm. how so many employees feel. It's like, well, I'm not going to speak up because no one, I don't want to get in trouble or no one's going to do anything about it or nobody cares or whatever. There's yeah. a bunch of people behind the scenes who actually do care, who have right. done a poor job, frankly, right. you know, no offense to anybody. They've yep. done a poor job of communicating that heart back to the workplace, back yep. to the workforce, back to the people that decide to show up there, everybody, every, every day. Nobody has a gun to their head showing up to work. They mm-hmm. choose to come there. And it's our job mm-hmm. as employers to go ahead and, you know, make sure that they understand uh, that we take that commitment seriously. Mm. Um, I think that's that, that's absolutely right. Um, okay, so I want to um, move us along to ROI as a topic. I know that yeah, this is an I area love this topic. Yeah, you guys are passionate about. Um, and so as businessmen, you place a high value on ensuring the return on, uh, on investment of decisions that you make for your business is appropriate. Uh, but what's interesting, I think, is that you also espouse applying ROI approaches in the compliance function, including dealing with board members. So explain for us why compliance officers shouldn't tell board members that they need more budget so they can prevent X dollars in fines and what they should stay, say instead to be more influential. There is no romance in that. You know what I'm saying? It's not a romantic thing to come to the board and say, I need more of this to prevent fines. That should obviously be a part of it. And Geo's really good at talking about this and so forth. But we've had a lot of success helping some, some you know, chief compliance officers of massive organizations get that extra budget by telling a bigger story that that's beyond the seatbelt uh, that you know ethics and compliance can provide from a safety perspective, but really shift the focus toward, hey, th- this is an employee engagement play. This is a play of getting you know the magic of our workforce unlocked. There, there's so much here, right? So at, at the core, compliance teams need budget to get their work done, right? I've never met a compliance officer who's complaining about, hey, they gave me too much budget, or I have too much time, or I just have way too many smart people on my team. We've run out of things to do, right? There's always more to do. That's part of you know what the reality of risk management and stuff like that is. And then um, you know this, it, it ends up being, okay, well, we need to do that. Well, we also want we also want buy-in across the organization, so we need to be able to have these conversations. And ultimately, the path to building a more ethical culture is advocating to the execs at the board. You know, you need everything, right? You need tone at the top, you need move at the middle, you need kind of the frontline buy-in. Um, but you know, a lot of people, you know, see a big kind of gating issue or stopgap in that executive buy-in. And you know, what we realize, you know, Nick and I have been part of board conversations kind of most of our career as advisors or as company owners or, you know, running our own company or sitting on other boards. And, you know, we've realized that if, if compliance leaders can understand that the conversation is probably a little bit different from what you're used to. And it, you know, to Nick's, you know, how Nick said it needs to be a little romantic or you need to be a little ambitious or you need to give people the full picture of the potential benefit. And then you can have that conversation around, hey, you know what? I don't think that we're probably going to make that much return on that piece of it, but I definitely buy this other piece. There's so much magic to unlock, not just like to go get some more budget, but to be seen as somebody who can lead not just the conversation around budget, but to lead the company in a new direction. And we think that this, you know, I don't want anyone to feel bad if you don't know how to have an ROI discussion or how to do a compelling ROI calculation or pitch it to your board. You know, we, we offer to help people with that for free because it's just kind of the right thing to do. Um, you don't have to feel bad about it, but also to realize that, you know, it's a skill set to gain. Um, and if you can get up that learning curve, it can unlock a bunch of other things 
you know, not just for your budget, but for how your team is viewed and for what you can accomplish for the good of all the people at your organization. And we walk people through kind of a compliance one, two, and 3.0 framework. Kind of one is just keep the boss out of jail, avoid those fines. And a lot of people stop there. And, you know, you might be able to, to, show an ROI that's five times bigger if you can complete two and 3.0. So 2.0 is kind of getting the job done well. That's efficiency for your team. And we're going to be able to get more done with less and things like that. People are starting to get into that. And that that 3.0 is some of those things Nick talked about, about, you know, if you layer kind of fines, efficiency, and then gains for the organization around employee engagement, around, you know, recruiting and retention, around those types of things, because, you know, I think you got to believe that all this hard work that we're doing compliance eventually helps employees, not just the board and the execs. If you believe that, you can put that into your ROI pitch. And, you know, you can, uh, you know, I think you can have a richer conversation um, that ultimately results in more success for you and your team. And the influence piece is fun. And it's also uh, beyond the sort of ones and zeros that go to the straight objectivity tied to just data. So like people don't invest in Tesla because of what it says on the ticker tape. They invest in it because of the broad story of it and the romance of going to the moon mm. and, mm-hmm. you know, Elon Musk as Bruce Wayne. He said, you know, a real life Bruce Wayne or something. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm. that's what people invest in. And if, you know, logic makes you think, if you, you know, if your board presentation or your budget request is all based on logic and all based on data, then you're going to have a bunch of people who are well-informed but aren't going to do anything. Logic makes you think, but emotion makes you act. So we have to figure out what are those emotional you know, levers that the board actually cares about beyond the numbers on the page, beyond these, you know, inputs relative to those, to those outputs that, that they're really focused on and crafting some kind of a story on how, you know, we are uniquely positioned to affect these outcomes in a more meaningful way. At the end of the day, like, let's just look at any P&L. The ethics and compliance budget is like a rounding error in most cases. So that leaves a ton of, of opportunity for us to get more money than we need. So, you know, we have a whole bunch of frameworks that help folks kind of start to get their hands on some of those dollars so that they can really do the work that they know in their hearts and in their minds that is going to make the biggest impact in their organization. And it's just right there. You know, something we talk about all the time is like, this is not 1996 anymore. We all have programs. We all have tools in place. We all have, you know, functions on our, you know, we all have titles on our business card that are tied to these functions that we're in. Now it's just small little tweaks that we can make to have a massive impact in our organizations. None of us are starting from scratch and nothing grows on a sort of a straight line basis. We're right at this inflection point where the, you know, parabolic uh, arc can really start uh, being felt in terms of the added impact that we can get for little marginal changes in our effort. We just have to sing the song at a little bit of a different tune. You know what I mean? Mm, awesome. And so if any of our listeners are interested in this complimentary um, no obligation ROI chat with you guys, it's fine for them to reach out and get in touch and, and request some time. Yeah. I mean, it's so fun to go through, mm-hmm. you know, somebody gives us some of their numbers and we mm-hmm. go through this calculator with them and we kind of help them brainstorm some talk tracks and you can see the confidence like mm-hmm. well up in them. You can see that like, you know, ah, I don't know how to have this conversation. And now it's mm-hmm. like, well, I can say this and I can say this and I have data behind it. Mm-hmm. And you know, the story can hold together and you can start speaking the language of the people that you're trying to influence. That's such an, an it's such a critical way to ascend from just, again, this kitty table to a seat at the table with, you know, mm. the, the seat at the, at the table where strategy is talked about and the think quote unquote things that matter are talked about. That spot awesome. is there for us. We just need to pull our chair up to it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I encourage you all to take up that opportunity and um, help your chair get pushed in a bit by these guys. Um, I think you'll find it really useful. 
Yeah. Thanks, Tom. Mary. And, you know, we're glad to help. And, you know, uh, you can get in touch with us. We have some stuff on our website that you can just download our framework and stuff like that. Um, Cause we think that, you know, even if we never do business together, if some compliance leaders can have a better conversation around this, the world's going to be a better workplace. Compliance line has a hotline benchmarking report. Um, will you tell us about some of the most significant findings from the recent report that you'd like to share with our audience? You know, I think we should probably tag team it because we probably have some similar ones, but maybe some uh, some different takeaways. So the yeah. biggest opportunity that I see in it, well, I guess the biggest surprise is the opportunity I see in it, I think. Um, there, you know, we talk to a lot of folks who are getting one or two reports per hundred employees in our organization. And if you cut that against any one of these other you know, studies that are out there, Gartner study. I mean, there's just dozens of these other studies. Like you have to ask yourself, how many, how many unique reports exist in my organization? And then ask yourself, how many total reports do I exist in my organization? If two people see the same event, those are two potential reports. I guarantee you it's way more than two. So, you know, we spent a little time talking about speak up, listen up. We spot, we, we spent a little time talking about unlocking the magic in the workforce. There's nobody that I know who doesn't want a workplace that values them, that wants to, you know, that, um, that, that doesn't want a workplace that, uh, wants to know what they think. So these are all things that I think are very, you know, basic and there's just a massive opportunity. There's a ton of headroom above, uh, where most organizations are at and to turn this thing into a real strategic lever in the organization, you know, let me put it this way. It's not like we're running a four minute mile and we're like, uh, you know, maybe I can shave off five or 10 seconds. We're running a 15 minute mile. Like there is a ton of potential for us to use these, these inlets, not only as tools to give people a voice, but to also start to crowdsource risk management. So many folks in the ethics and compliance game kind of fall victim to this goalie syndrome where you get no credit for all the shots you block and you get all the blame for the one goal that gets passed you mm. into the net. Mm -hmm. And yet we have hundreds, thousands, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of people walking around that if we could actualize, we have all these risk management sensors. We just have to give these people a voice and understand and make them understand what we truly believe that their voice matters. So, you know, that's always the glaring sort of, you know, since we started doing this a couple of years ago, I've just, my mind has been blown around the potential for this thing. And um, it really is, I think, perhaps the quickest and most effective way to start really crowdsourcing risk management on a meaningful level and start mm. to take some of that weight. You know, many of us are walking around with, with the weight of the world on, on our shoulders. We'll start sharing that around with other people who actually care about the mission and the company that we're in. So I think Nick is saying that I should be able to run a mile in under 15 minutes. So yeah. we'll have to do another show about that. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, Nick, we could talk about the mix of how those reports come in. But I think, you know, the, the, the probably next biggest highlight for me is turnaround time on these reports. And, you know, most people we work with don't just see the hotline as a thing. It's a contributor to the overall process of issue intake, case management, workplace investigation, remediation, and ultimately that feeding into your compliance plan. And what we see when, you know, when people have kind of these two um, kind of changes to how how the work gets done through that issue and taking case management piece, um, their actual days outstanding for open cases can drop significantly from what right. most people are used to in the industry benchmark, which is you know you know maybe fifteen or twenty percent of your cases get get closed in under thirty days, but most of them are over thirty days, and a bunch of them are kind of close to ninety and above ninety days for cases being open. That's what people look at and they say, "How oh, okay? Well, you know, I guess I guess we're beating that. You know, we don't we don't have that many uh, issues that take ninety days. But what we see is when you have these two things that can unlock performance and ultimately effectiveness in your compliance program, you can you can 
invert that so that mo- the vast majority of your cases get closed in under 30 days. And just think about what that can unlock for right. your compliance culture, how people, you know, how much confidence people have in the compliance team, the additional work that you can do when you're not spending all this time going over and over a case over 90 days. And those two things that unlock that are proper issue intake that gives you not just a hint that an issue is going on, but actually gives you good data for you to triage, assign, um, you know, focus on and take action on an issue that comes in. So you get that good issue intake upfront. And then when you have that software that actually works for you, instead of you trying to kind of do backbends to kind of fit into someone else's process, if your software platform can be configured for the process that works for your team and how distributed or centralized it is and what the risks are within your company. Um, when you have those two things, we see that that people's ability to deliver a quick you know, a, a much quicker resolution time on your issues um, really has a, the chance to change the game, not just on, you know, the stat, but it informs a lot of other things. How often are those risks standing out there? How frustrating and hard is it for your compliance team to go through these things? And ultimately, what is the experience of employees after they raise their hand and say, hey, you were listening. You said that you're, you're, you're a listen up culture, so I'm going to speak up. What is their experience, which, you know, that can then kind of feed into, because all these things are tied together, satisfaction and, you know, kind of a proper understanding of that process can lead people to say, hey, you know what, the past five places I was at, uh, they didn't take compliance and ethics seriously at all. I just kind of stepped out on a limb and, and spoke up about something, and they actually did an awesome job with it. There's something going on at this company that the compliance team actually cares, and they're here to help. Mm, excellent. Thank you for that. Um, aside from not choosing compliance line as a hotline <laughs> provider, what would you say a common pitfall is that companies are making with their reporting hotlines and how can they resolve that problem? Well, you took my answer there. Mary. I'm <laughs> kidding. But like if your restaurant is failing, it would probably be a good idea to put on a mask or something uh, or disguise, I should say, uh, and go and test out the restaurant and see what kind of a dining experience you're getting. So I would say the biggest pitfall companies have is they don't, they don't call into their line and see what that thing feels like. Not, mm-hmm. not from a straight objective standpoint, but from a subjective emotional standpoint, what does that feel like? Put yourself, you know, engage in the empathy that most of us are really highly wired in. Most of us are highly uh, empathetic who wind up in this field. Picture the person who has had a knot in their stomach for the last you know, six weeks driving to work who mm-hmm. snuck out during lunch into their car to call in and report mm-hmm. this thing that's just been weighing on them. Maybe it's something that didn't even happen to them. It's just something that they saw that's weighing on their conscientious conscience that they want to do something about. Mm-hmm. What is that? What does that experience feel like? You know what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't yeah. matter how good the dish of risotto is. If it's, you know, yep. a gourmet dish of risotto, if it winds up in the patron's lap, they're probably not going to come back to your restaurant again. And if somebody's yep. sitting on the phone for 20 minutes, listening to a bunch of music, listening to careless whisper or something, mm-hmm. they're probably not going to call in again. As a matter of fact, they're probably going to tell every, you know, their friends in the break room, it's not even worth it. Yeah. And so we, we did this. Um, and at the time, um, I called in the middle of the day in uh, Hong Kong and wanted to speak with someone in Cantonese. Uh, we ended up calling the hotline, which was not yours, uh, a competitor of yours, twice, and they were simply not able to provide us with someone who could speak Cantonese during the middle of the day in Hong Kong. And so, Thanks. yeah, it was really frustrating because, you know, I think you you, you point out when you decide to call the compliance action line, you don't just make a snap decision and do it. It's something that you've been thinking about for a long time. You have weighed up 
whether retaliation might be an issue. You've decided that you care enough. You've decided that the other side cares enough to do something about it. You go to all of that mind investment and emotion, and then you don't even get to do what you um, said that you were going to, you know, what you'd committed to yourself to doing. And it's frustrating because you want the, if, if a compliance action line is advertising itself as being um, multi-language and, uh, you know, a truly global service, and then you you as the compliance person call up, I feel like that reflects badly on me as well as a compliance person, right? Because I'm touting yep. this thing. I'm telling people, you can trust in me, you can trust in our process and it turns out that they can't. So, Nick, I think that's a fantastic idea. I would encourage all of you, not just calling up in your own country, but try to um, see if there's someone available to speak in um, a, a critical language for your business, even if yep. you can't speak it yourself. You, that, that's fine. You don't need to be fluent in it, but you, you you just need to be able to test. You just need to be able to ask, is there someone available that can speak to me in Spanish or, or whatever it is that right. you, you choose. Yeah, I think that's, you know, we, we've had people, you know, when they're shopping around, you know, they test their line and they have somebody in country say, hey, test it and record it or just test it and send me your notes. How long were you waiting on hold? What was mm. the answering process like? You know, how well did they, you know, how understanding were they of the questions you were asked, you, they were asking you and did they know whether, you know, you gave a good answer or whatever. So you can have someone else do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's really critical and, you know, kind of uh, another angle I would put on this, Nick did a really good job illustrating this, you know, what I would just call kind of the voice of the customer from a software standpoint, you know, we, we want to know what is that VOC? What is the person who uses this? You know, what is a quote unquote restaurant patron experience here? Um, and, you know, I think that that's a critical mindset that can inform, you know, how you look at your abandonment rate on your hotline and how many people yeah, call in point. and never report something mm -hmm. or look at, you know, what is the answering process or to your point, you know, interpretation, translation, things like that. Getting into that mindset of the voice of the customer is what Nick brought up. And the other piece I think is, you know, closely related to what you brought up, Mary. Um, compliance leaders really end up putting our name on our whole program, right? We mm -hmm. talk right. to our team internally around, if someone makes a painting that they're proud of, they sign their name at the bottom, right? And we right. want to sign our work and say, I did this, I vouch for the quality of it, et cetera. And I think for a large part, the programs that compliance leaders run, they're thoughtful, they're, uh, you know, they're mindful of the different trade-offs. They try to do a good job on it. You know, they cross their T's and dot their I's. Well, there's, a big, there's an increasingly large piece of the delivery of excellence within a compliance program that is reliant on external vendors, right? This is not just, you know, doing vendor management across your whole organization of, you know, everyone that's, you know, kind of bought by procurement, but the teams that you rely on as a compliance professional really should be part of your team. They should be advocates for you. They should care about what you're doing. They should be concerned about whether they're performing, not just to their contract, but what you need to get done. And we can figure out the contract later. I think adding that mindset of, you know, like, I think we're kind of trained to do the opposite of we've had so many frustrating interactions exactly. with vendors where we just say, hey, you know what, I guess until we can run this internally ourselves, I just got to deal with C minus work. Um, mm -hmm. from my vendor. And I think that realizing that there are vendors out there, maybe there weren't 15 years ago that you knew of or something like mm -hmm. that. But increasingly, people are realizing that compliance leaders, you know, they need help. We, we can solve those problems and, you know, we can help them at scale in realizing that if you find a vendor that is an advocate for you, that cares about your team, that actually follows through on their commitments and, you know, 
shocking, maybe occasionally outperformed your expectations, mm-hmm. that can really unlock a lot of magic for your team, for your hotline, or for you know how you manage cases, or really you know anywhere else, vendor management, policy, training, all of those things. I think that mindset of, I should demand the same excellence for my vendors that I demand mm-hmm. for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, you know, it can be hard to do and you have to do change man- management and stuff like that. But I think that if you do that, you, you know, you realize that the work that's delivered that, you know, essentially to your point, Mary has my name signed out in any ways, right? You mm-hmm. were saying, I tell everyone, Hey, trust me. Exactly. And then they call, call my third party vendor and, you know, they get bad, bad treatment. Well, you know, I mean, I think we care about that. It also kind of represents our work in realizing that those vendors should be an extension of your team, not a rock in your boot, I think can really kind of transform the like total production and ROI and quality that comes off a compliance team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was just going to add to that, you know, it kind of is just about like letting go of the status quo thinking, like mm-hmm. none of us are victims. We all have agency to affect our lives. And this is not about us. This is not about compliance line or whatever. Uh, we're not right for everybody, but mm-hmm. whatever's right for you is what you should go and get. Mm-hmm. And they could, it goes back to what I was saying, like it's small tweaks to our expectations, it's small tweaks to our programs, it's small tweaks to our messaging or the, the way that, that we influence those people around us whose buy-in we need that are really going to cause us to elevate. And we're never going to get those new outcomes if we keep doing the same inputs, we keep doing the same things over and over again. So these small tweaks, we have to be, we have to be willing to sort of shatter those uh, status quos that we might be you know, subject to and uh, create the world that we want. Mm. Yeah, and the I love third that. thing you should do is listen to the Great Women in Compliance <laughs> podcast. Of course, continue to educate yourself, smash that like and subscribe button, and share it with your friends. That's exactly. also going to help you run a better hotline. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, if you guys wouldn't mind um, writing some um, reviews for the podcast after this, it'd be much appreciated. Sure, I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll write them under a bunch of fake names too. I'll give you ten. <laughs> yeah, let's be ethical here. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, yeah, I love what you guys are doing to shake things up. And I will say as well that on the customer side, you know, it can be very um, tempting to be sort of complacent and, and just hope that, that a vendor will sort things out. What totally. I have found is that it's kind of like being in a bad relationship. It's very unlikely that people are just going to turn around and be like, you know, mm. oh, we've fixed everything and now we're great. It's it's basically sunk costs staying in a and bad why relationship. Why do you think that is? I think for certain companies, uh, and I'm, I'm just thinking, if you happen to hold market power um, in in the compliance space, you're not incentivized to improve because you're just getting all the money anyway, right? So, True. That's a good point. Um, you know, unless people come in, new entrants to the market, and make people compete, it's essentially an antitrust issue. <laughs> good um, point. Right. Yeah, that's a good so, reframe. Yeah. So if if people, you know, if I give feedback and things aren't any better, like, hey, can I please have have some people in Cantonese like you promised me? And then there's suddenly no people hired to to do that, then I know that I'm not really valued as a customer mm. or that my company's um, business isn't great enough to sort of meet some threshold of materiality that will result in true change being made. So, and that's, you know, when it comes to that, and maybe you are in the, the best situation that you're in, but you, you don't know for sure unless you start shopping around and checking. And as you point out, I mean, there are so many new players in the game totally. now compared with when I first started out in compliance. And I think just, mm-hmm. you know, relying on that old knowledge of who was who and what they do is not going to be helpful to the modern day compliance person. So we have an obligation not only to stay up to date with regulations and trends and compliance, 
but also in terms of who's helping us with the work that we do, um, we don't want to be stuck with mediocre, complacent vendors. And so really opening your eyes to seeing who is out there, who's innovating, who's trying to make things better, um, and who might be a better fit for me and the company that I work for at this point in time versus five years ago, that, that kind of thing can change. That uh, relationship analogy is just kind of an interesting one. And I just think it applies to so many things, not just obviously, you know, your hotline vendor, but it can apply to so many things. It can apply to people on your team or the company you're at. At some level, you know, there's always when there's a bunch of people bumping up against each other or, or relying on, on each other and there haven't been sort of totally clear articulations of expectations and so forth, there's going to be missed expectations, right? Like just think about a relationship. But when you voice those things and there is no change, whether it's somebody on your team or somebody that you're dating or whatever, at some level you start to see like, okay, well, there's some kind of a mismatch. There's like an mm. ethos mis- mismatch or there's a values mismatch. Mm. And to your point, like those relationships never end up working out mm-hmm. or you just end up getting jaded or mm-hmm. you end up settling or something like that. So mm-hmm. um, you deserve better, you know, find you that, do deserve find that better. right mate. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think a lot of people stay, you know, to stick with the analogy, a lot of people stay in a bad relationship. Mm-hmm. I think at times, cause they think, well, who else would have me? Mm. Well, maybe this is just the best that I can get. And I'm just the type of person that has to, you know, date this, I don't know, slob or whatever you don't like about uh, your vendor. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I mean, the reality is, you know, you, if you're a compliance leader, like you're the bell of the ball. Like everybody, you know, there's so many other vendors that would love to provide service for you. So this isn't even like a match of, Hey, you know, I wonder if I have enough style to get a, you know, more, uh, more attractive mate. All you got to do is say, Hey, Mm. you know, here's some services that I need and a bunch of people want to pitch for them. So, you know, even more so than normal, you don't have to stay in that abusive relationship. Mm. But I mean, I think it also takes this understanding that, you know, these vendors are kind of like our equipment, right? You're in the Mm. driver's seat, you're the compliance leader, you decide who you do business with. Mm. Um, But at the end of the day, you need this equipment to win the race, right? So if everyone else in the industry is racing in a, a, you know, Formula One car, and you're still driving a Model T, because it's the same vendor that uh, you've been stuck with for the past 15 years, Mm. well, then you should realize that people have invented a lot better, cooler cars and better equipment that you can be running this race in or, you know, um, delivering your excellence in your compliance program. And, you know, it just takes, it's really not that hard. You know, I know it takes effort, but you know, it's not, uh, it's not brain science, uh, or rocket surgery to kind of do, do an RFP and see if someone else is going to want to, you know, pitch for your business. That's right. We're all going to get ourselves involved in rocket surgery any day now. Um, gentlemen, unfortunately, we've come to the end of the show, but I'm so grateful to you for taking the time. As always, when we talk, I have the best time. And, um, you know, I'm I'm grateful to you as well for, I mentioned before, shaking up the industry. But, you know, you guys bring so much um, fun and vibrance to the compliance space. I'm really pleased that you've um, you've joined us and that you've created yourself some space. And, um are getting out there and doing things and you're always so helpful towards others. Nick um, has worked with me on the the CCC stuff and these guys heavily care about their communities um, as well as their customers. So thank you for all that you do. Thank you for your friendship and um, look forward to getting this out. 
Yeah. Thank you so much for having us. And for those kind words, this was really a highlight of my career, honestly, to be on my freaking <laughs> favorite famous compliance podcast. <laughs> I feel so compliance famous now. I've like, I've, I, I never thought I'd make it um, very gracious of you for to give us those compliments, Mary, but the best compliment of all is just being on quick with you. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you guys. Appreciate you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.